Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. This month, food pantries and faith-based groups are busily preparing holiday baskets, and they're working overtime to keep food pantry shelves stocked. We are on average serving in a week what we used to do in a whole month. That's Ken Flemmer. He's director of the Adventist Community Services in Greater Washington. We'll hear from him a little later in the program. But his observations of demand are echoed by Feeding America, a national network of 200-plus food pantries around the country. They note that the demand is high right now. In 2020, more than 38 million people, including 12 million children in the United States, well, they're food insecure. The ecosystem of organizations and networks looking at hunger includes those concerned about another related issue, food waste. It's estimated that 10 billion pounds of produce grown around the country will never be harvested. That's according to the Association of Gleaning Organizations. Now, if you've never heard of gleaning, you're not alone. It's a pre-modern biblical practice. Last year, in the height of the pandemic, producer Kimberly Winston trekked out to a farm near Heldsburg in Northern California to pick persimmons and learn more about this ancient ritual, which is where we begin this week's episode. It's one of those crystal blue fall mornings that come to the Sonoma Valley. The sun climbs over the ridge of dusty mountains to the east, birds flit through the dormant grapevines, and a band of nine masked people descend on a backyard orchard snugged up to a dry creek bed. They are volunteers with Sonoma County Gleaners, a local organization that picks fruit and vegetables from nearby farms, orchards, and private homes like this one after the harvest has been hauled away. Today, the bounty consists of a few green figs and a whole lot of orange-skinned persimmons hanging high and low on a pair of trees. The crew of eight women and one man have brought fruit pickers, long sticks with baskets and tines for grabbing, and plunk the persimmons into rainbow-colored plastic bags with crates inside them. Come on, let me get these big babies here. I'm getting stuck in all the branches. Come on. Don't be shy. Come to Mama. I got one of them. It is the most basic of manual labor, but it is also one of the most ancient forms of charity. The Torah, the New Testament, and the Quran all mandate gleaning as a way to live out their shared commandment to care for the poor. And while the Sonoma group is not faith-based, its roster of volunteers includes people of many faiths and none at all. Eileen O'Farrell, who has gleaned for 30 years, maps her spiritual connection to gleaning. Nature is God. It's not that I'm a-religious, I'm just not connected to an organized religion. It's my own. (laughs) And if nature is God, then how does this fit in with your idea of that? Nature provides. We need to help nature distribute things. (laughs) 
The Sonoma County gleaners share what they gather with local food banks, including some church-based ones in nearby towns. But there are gleaning groups like theirs all over the United States and around the world. I run an organization called the Association of Gleaning Organizations. We're a relatively young organization, and we were founded by gleaners all across the country who wanted to collaborate and work more closely with each other. That's Sean Peterson, whose Salt Lake City-based organization counts about 180 gleaning groups in the United States and Canada. He tells me that the problem of food waste spans the entire farm-to-table chain, from less-than-perfect fruits and veggies that get plowed under to unpurchased grocery store produce that gets tossed out. There's a tremendous amount of food that never leaves the fields. It's the largest source of food waste in the U.S. outside of homes. We often think about all the food that doesn't get eaten in buffet lines or at grocery stores or things like that, but far more food never leaves the farm than anywhere else except for the food that we waste in our own homes. The numbers, when I look them up, take my breath away. According to a study conducted at Santa Clara University in 2019, one-third of all produce never leaves the farm but gets plowed under or otherwise disposed of. And that's where gleaners, like those in Sean's organization, come in. I was on a, a green with an organization in Indiana this summer. I have a lot of family in Indiana and it's privileged to be there to, to do some work with this cucumber grower. And the cucumber grower, I was just speaking to her in the field. So if you don't know, cucumbers are harvested by big machines and they come in with these big tractors and harvest them. And it throws all of them into a bin. And any of them that are too big or too small, for in this case for pickles, get thrown out of the bin and just thrown back into the field. And, and she was talking about how when she first started growing cucumbers a few years ago, she was just sickened by the amount of waste that was happening in the fields and, and no idea what to do. I personally picked up like over a thousand pounds of cucumbers in like four hours. There was another 30 or 40 gleaners in that field with me. And she had no idea what to do with it. And to be able to think of all her hard work going to waste, you know, a whole seasons of labor just rotting now in the field, and then thinking of all the people who she knew in her community who were going hungry, and it just sickened her. And now, you know, every year, um, this organization, a chapter of Society of St. Andrews, comes through and, and picks those cucumbers, and they go out to all sorts of people in Indiana, and it's great. That group Sean mentioned, the Society of St. Andrew, is another national gleaning organization, but it is one that is rooted in faith. It was started by two Methodist ministers and their families who were part of the Back to the Land movement in the 1960s and 70s. In 1983, the ministers were preaching at a church on Virginia's eastern shore. Lynette Johnson, the executive director of the Society of St. Andrew, picks up the story. There's a lot of potatoes grown there, and they were talking about the potato fields around them and said, if we went out into any of these potato fields and started digging, we would find thousands of pounds of potatoes left unharvested under the level that the mechanical harvesters have reached. And a farmer who was in the, the service that morning took offense and said, no, there, there's no, no food left in my fields. I know I've gotten it all. So they said, well, let's go take a look. And so after worship was over, everyone put on their grubby clothes and rolled up their sleeves and went out and started digging and sure enough found thousands of pounds of potatoes. And within about a week or two of that time, they got a call from another farmer who happened to have been involved that morning who said, if I had 16,000 pounds of potatoes that I was willing to give to feed hungry people, 
could you find a way to do it? The long and short of it is, within a month of that time, Society of St. Andrew, which was the name of the the group of two families living together and and sharing all things in common, had distributed a quarter million pounds of potatoes from those farmers on the eastern shore and quickly realized that that was what they were being called to do. And that's what we've been about ever since. And tell me why it's St. Andrew. In the New Testament, in John's telling of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew is the disciple who brings the boy to Jesus with loaves and fish. So nobody in the crowd thinks that's much food. Not even the disciple thinks that's much food, but with with Jesus, that's multiplied and, and feeds thousands. And so we are all about finding little bits of food that, that maybe other people don't see as being very useful, and then um, getting that food and, and seeing it multiplied uh, as it feeds so many people. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. In Islam, gleaning is tied to the practice of zakat, the giving of alms to the poor, one of the five pillars of the faith. He is the one who established gardens. Eat from their fruits and give the due alms on the day of harvest and do not waste anything. He does not love the wasters. I would say that 90% of our volunteers are coming to us through their congregation or because of their faith. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not something we require, but it opens doors for us when we move into new areas as we expand our volunteer network because every faith, not just the Christian faith, but every faith has a command to care for the less fortunate. And so it's easy to call a congregation of any faith and say, hey, remember that thing that, that your scripture tells you to do. You can come and do that with us. But there are benefits beyond fulfilling a religious obligation, Johnson says. So many of our folks who glean have never seen food growing before. They've never been involved in the farm and food system before in that way. And so to see how hard that work is to glean for a few hours and then think about farm workers who are doing that day after day, 11, 12 hours a day, um, helps them become advocates for people who are working on farms throughout the country. And then it also helps them meet, meet farmers in their area and then realize how important the farming economy is. Um, and a lot of those folks who glean with us will start shopping at local farmers markets so that they can patronize local farms directly and be sure that their dollars are staying there in the community to help farmers. And that's another great benefit. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that in some ways, gleaning is an activity that can also build compassion. Absolutely. Mm. Build compassion and community, I think. That was certainly my experience picking persimmons. The fruit picker I borrowed from my next-door neighbor was heavy, and the fruits always seemed to glow just beyond my reach, great orange blobs against the blue sky. My crate was less than half full before I found myself saying, this is hard work. It made me more mindful of the workers I had seen on the way to the glean who were tending vines in the nearby vineyards. Jane Penites is 73 and has been gleaning for five years. She is also not religious, but gets a sense of well-being from gleaning. I like being outside. I like people. I like uh, giving back something, mm-hmm. helping in some way. Well, it does feel good to me in my heart that I'm helping 
giving some, uh, you know, I have a real empathy for people who are food uh, undernourished. And uh, so it just feels good to help give back something. By now, my crate is finally getting full, and so are the crates of the other gleaners. Danny Wilcox, the founder of Sonoma County Gleaners, is gathering four or five persimmons at a time with her fruit picker and stops to tally up the harvest. Danny, one more time. How many pounds? Four. 400 pounds. Wow. Wow. Of mm. persimmons. Mm. Um, how many pounds of figs, Eileen? 11 pounds of figs. And how many pomegranates? <laughs> <laughs> 11 minus <laughs> The gleaners pair up to carry the produce back to Danny's SUV, which is soon filled to the top. Then everyone says, see you next Thursday, when they will gather to glean again at another location. This year, they have picked kale, peppers, grapes, plums, tomatoes, and lots of citrus. After Danny shuts the door on her car, I follow her to a community food bank about 10 minutes away in the town of Windsor. The two of us unload, another new compassion-building activity for me. We sit in the shade of an oak tree for a socially distanced assessment of the day's work. It's really about using food that would go to waste and feeding people and They don't have to have anything to trade you for it. They don't have to have money. They don't have to have um, a service to offer you. They don't have to give you other produce or food in exchange. It's just a pure donation. You're helping someone who can't do it themselves. And then in turn, they feel good because they're not wasting something they, they intentionally planted. And it's going to someone who needs it who really, really needs it. I mean, so many people are really out of work right now and they can't afford to buy food. We should not waste our earth. You know, the earth should be nurturing and nourishment for all. And if there's extra, people should eat it. It is the moral thing to do. It's absolutely the moral thing to do. And it's an imperative that has gained urgency during this time of pandemic, according to Lynette Johnson of the Society of St. Andrew. As many as 54 million Americans, about one in six, face food insecurity now. So there's certainly the need, and the food is available. There's no reason that any person in this country should ever go hungry. And as folks who believe that we have a responsibility for our neighbors, this is a time more than any other that calls us to be looking for opportunities to serve them and to find food that will meet their needs. And if you need another reason to glean, there's this. As the country fights the coronavirus by closing indoor events, gleaning is something that is done outdoors and can involve the whole family. I know I'm already shopping for a fruit picker of my own. Oh, oh, oh sorry! <laughs> <laughs> Don't hit the reporter! Oh, no! That was producer Kimberly Winston picking persimmons with the Sonoma County Gleaners in Heldsburg, California. This year, the Society of St. Andrews gleaned nearly 47 million pounds of food for area food banks. To learn more about gleaning, visit this week's show notes for links at interfaithradio.org. While gleaners make an impact on hunger, they are but one part of this growing network of folks seeking to solve the problem of hunger in America. 
Coming up, we meet Ken Flemmer, head of the Adventist Community Services of Greater Washington, D.C. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we're taking a closer look at the ecosystem of partners and organizations working to address hunger and to help those in need. In many communities, faith-based organizations are not only a one-stop shop to find support when you're looking for help, but they're also a place for folks who want to help. And it's often not limited to one issue. Long before the stories about inflation or the influx of refugees in the greater D.C. area, the Adventist Community Services was always ready to stand up and help. They operate out of a small, nondescript building nestled between a series of multifamily apartment buildings. To the side of its operating headquarters, which is quite small, there is a parking lot, and it's where I found Ken Flemmer. He's tall and he's tanned, a sign of lots of days spent standing in the hot sun, greeting visitors and helping volunteers, which is where I found him. I was born and raised in North Dakota, of all places. (laughs) A lot of German immigrants uh, that settled in in the central plains there. So we learned how to work hard, so I'm not afraid of work. <laughs> when you're a farmer in that setting in North Dakota, you've got three months to make 12 months of living. And that leaves you pretty focused and able to think strategically, what do I need to do today so I'm going to be where I need to be two weeks from now, two months from now? Because if you're not, I may want to go 
swimming, but if I don't do this, I might be hungry come January. And that agriculture biological thinking uh, has had a huge influence on, on my career. And, and how did faith play into that? How did the Seventh-day Adventist community life, what did it look like back then in North Dakota? <laughs> um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, little town with a German name, Leer, which in German means empty, and that's exactly what it was, an empty little community. Um, but it had profound influence on me and my first job outside of working on the farm, you know, at the grocer in town. I've always, even in before college was thinking about someday I'm going to live overseas. Towards the end of my college days, I got an opportunity and my wife and I went to Japan, taught English. And from there, we went to Liberia, West Africa, taught in a high school. It was hard some days, but at least we were giving them a solid foundation and they took and built on that foundation. And what organization was that with? That was Seventh-day Adventist Mission School in, in Liberia. And then later on, I went uh, out to Asia and was the Asia Regional Director for Avenist Relief Agency. Have you been following the plight of religious minorities as well, trying to leave Afghanistan? Uh, not so much. I, I've kind of unplugged myself of some of those global issues and, right. and plugged myself in here because this is what's important to me right now, to be able to navigate effectively here. Uh, I'm leaving that to others. Well, I appreciate talking with you. I appreciate hearing that backstory. And I see you've got someone here who's just pulled up looking and trying to figure out where they need to go. And I'll go help them. Thank you so much, Sure, th- Sure. And for the clothing, I think they're splitting it by gender and um, age. Also the toys, I think they're doing the same thing. And are these all designated for Afghan? Yes, um, they're all. This whole thing as Afghan refugees, I believe. Wow. And how quickly did all of this come in? This is my first day. This is her second day, but she said there's trucks come, like, throughout the day, like, one every hour, basically. Like, we just emptied this U-Haul, actually, so... Yeah, my friend has a hair salon in Maryland. Yeah. She's opened up her salon for donations, and she's bringing bandfuls by the week. Wow. Are you surprised by the generosity and the response? Um... In this community, yes, but, you know, it's very heartwarming to see either way. Um, It's nice that we can grab the community together. We're from Virginia, so, you know, it's not just Maryland. And why did you feel like you needed to come out? Um, You know, I wasn't in the States throughout the whole pandemic, and I was watching our uh, country go into shambles, and I couldn't do anything. But when I saw this, you know, I thought I could do something to help the community and give back. And what about you? How long have you been volunteering? Today's your first day? Yeah, today's my first day. She just dragged, not dragged me, but I happily came with her. And do either of you belong to a faith community? Are you part of a faith community in Virginia? Not necessarily. I mean, I'm... No, no judgment. No, no, I'm Catholic, but, you know, I'm not really part of any community. Sure. Yeah. Sure. How's yeah. it feeling so far? It feels good. I mean, it's a hot day, but it feels good to help out. And, it is a hot day. I'm going to yeah. let you guys get back to okay. it. Thank you so much Thank for you. talking to me. Hey guys. Hi. Hi. Mine. How are mine. you? Mine. Good. Mine. How are you? Mine. Mine. You guys volunteering to help? Yes. How old are you? Um, I'm 11 years old. Uh, I'm also 11. I'm also 11. Yeah. But you're here helping to do what? Um, helping to donate to people that might need some help. 
we're giving um, diapers usually. We give diapers to women uh, for their babies or men. And also we're packing up toys for kids right now. Do you, do you know who it's going to go to? Um, we're donating to kids who don't have a lot of toys. So this is, I, I'm boxing for kids 4 to 10 years old. Got it. How does it feel? How does it feel to be doing this? It's fun when I give toys to little kids. When they put, it, when they get a smile on their face, it's very fun. Yeah, it. It. I think it also really helps because we also give away food bags and pad bags, and stuff to do laundry and dishes and toys and blankets and toilet paper. How did you guys find out about this? Uh, she told me about it, so I'm joining today. Yeah. She also told me about it, and I've, I've done it for about two weeks now. And how did you find out about it? You seem to be the source um, of all volunteering. It started, like, me trying to get some social learning hours where you have to help the community to graduate high school, which is a really good thing that the community should do. And then I really like this place, so I came back, and I've been doing it for weeks now. Thank you guys for talking to me. I'll let you get back to work. Why so where are you from? Out? Which channel? Can I have this? Um, I am from a public radio program called uh, Inspired. It's produced by Interfaith Voices. We explore the way beliefs shape our world. Have you been a longtime volunteer here? 17 years. Tell me your name. Joyce Simmons. Joyce, tell me, is this what draws you to coming to the Adventist Community Center? The Lord. <laughs> he really does because he gives me the energy to want to get up in the morning to come and help people. That is my dream, to help seniors and youth. And are you a member of any of the faith communities in the area? I'm a Baptist. But, you know, religion doesn't matter. You know, it's from the heart of what you do makes a difference. This outpouring of support, have you seen this kind of support before? You've been coming for 17 years. When my boss, Ken Flemmer, puts a notice out to people, people react. We have had a fire several years ago. And we put out a notice, and oh my God, it's it was just like this. Everybody just came to our rescue. We had containers filled full of diapers and clothing, and and we would set it out here in the parking lot and have the people that was in the fire come and walk down and pick up what they needed. And oh, it's just so overwhelming. I guess that's why I like to be here is because it, it's a good feeling to help people. It, a lot of people are feeling somewhat helpless and overwhelmed with the headlines today. Do you feel that way? Yes, I do. I think it's very sad that, you know, everybody's a human being, that everybody should be treated that way. And for other people to be treated, you know, maybe they don't believe in what I believe in and they want to be mean or something to me. But I just turn the cheek and keep on going because, you know, when you do that, people respond to you in better ways, you know, because nobody wants to be... Um, mean people or ornery people, you know. It's, so, I don't know. I guess I just got too much love in my heart. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you sharing. Joyce, thank you so much for talking. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I'll let you get back to work. Yes, thank you. Um, How are you? Good. How are you? Wow. This is exciting. This is. It's, um, it's incredible to see. So I see about... 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 volunteers. Are you yeah. with the No, I'm donating. I actually... Um, I'm a local resident. Um, I have a local bakery. Is this the Artisan Greek Bakery? Yeah, it is. And are you hoping that families who are coming here with nothing will have find something of use and value? Yeah, definitely. I have a little one at home, and you know, we just uh, we had an abundance of school supplies. So I was really hoping that 
we could respond to, especially families with children. Um, and we're hoping if they're accepting more donations down the road, you know, we'll be able to pull some additional items together. But um, definitely, I mean, mostly for, I feel for anyone with, with children. Have you been following the story unfolding with the evacuation in Afghanistan? I have a little bit. I try not to read too many headlines. <laughs> so um, I have been. Um, and, you know, it's exciting that we live in a metropolis that's accepting a lot of um you know, a lot of people and there's we're in a, such a diverse community that everybody's willing to help. And I th- just think it's, it's, you know, it's good to see. Did you grow up in this area? I did. Yeah. So you're, na- you're native of I'm the DC native. area. There's this perception yeah, that there are no natives here. I know. <laughs> yeah. And tell me your name. My name's Katerina George Alice. And Katerina, are you, is your family from Greece? Can I, can I make that assumption from your last name and from the fact that you're yeah. a Greek bakery? <laughs> Um, yes. Parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents on both sides. And is being an immigrant kind of part of your own family story, their own experience migrating and coming here? It definitely is, yeah. Yeah, depending on the different generations or, you know, when they, they came to America. So it's something I hold close to heart and something that I'm trying to preserve our own heritage uh, through our food. It's been what our whole mission since day one. So it's time for, you know, other families to start telling their stories, too. Is food something that you feel like is part of that story sharing? Absolutely. Yeah. Everything is centered around a table no matter where you live. That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you so much for talking yeah, with thanks. me. Great. Hi. Sorry. That's okay. You're totally fine. It's Sorry, crazy day. Sure. Sure. Go ahead. Because I was going to ask if my church can help out more. Are you going to continue next week? Or um, no? Yeah, we're, we're going to have to sort till we're done. I'll be here Thursday, I'll be here Friday. Okay. And Sunday, a little bit different, attended to. Okay. I need a little bit of a break. Yeah, I know. It is hot, too. <laughs> because I've been doing this two weeks now. Okay. So I can share with my church, too, for yeah. instance. Yeah. i come back when we can. You know, the, we got can more... I ask you a question oh. about your church? Is, are you bringing volunteers from your church community? I was going to post it at our church website, see if there's any volunteers who want to come along, too, as well. Which faith community do you belong to? Oh, the, the church name? Uh, the Well Community Church. I am yeah. a reporter with um, a public radio show. We look at the way religion and faith influence and shape the way we do work. Does your faith community typically step up and offer volunteer services? Um, we try to, yeah, wherever we can help out. And Ken is doing a great job here and getting things organized. I think as we've been standing here, I've seen five cars roll up. Yes, definitely. So more hands to help. Um, anybody who can help, you know. How have you been responding to the headlines that you're seeing? It, it seems so hard to see all the people trying to get out of the country from Afghanistan, and we just want to do every little bit that we can help, even though we are far away. So hopefully people can be safe and come here if they can. So many people I've talked to today have shared how their own families have an immigrant story, which is partly why they feel motivated to come. Does that resonate for you? Uh, yes. My parents did come here as immigrants, too, as well, and with little, too, but not as... As, as horrendous as the people from Afghanistan are coming through. You know, every little bit helps. And if there's a community to surround um, these friends, then hopefully we can be a part of that. Hi, Ken. How are you? Tired. <laughs> Tired. I heard you telling Annie over here that you've been, uh, it's been like almost two weeks now of an overwhelming response from the community. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what the reaction's been and tell me what you see as the need. The reaction has been off the chart. I um, put it out in the, some of the local listservs here in the Tacoma Park Silver Spring area, and somebody went and put it on Instagram, and it went viral. I've had 
a lot of cash donations made on on my website you know specifying for the resettlement as you can see there's a lot of goods here some of it a lot of it is brand new some of it is slightly used and my initial appeal was not only to help the Afghans, but we're seeing arrivals coming from Central America, from the southern border. They spent three days on a Greyhound bus show up here at Silver Spring Station, pretty worn out and also needing some help. So some of this will also go into that community. We have a food pantry here. We never lost a step through COVID. We are on average serving in a in a week what we used to do in a whole month. We have a closed closet. I call it my free thrift shop. So some of these donations are put out for those that come seeking food. And then early in in COVID, we partnered with DC Diaper Bank, and we distribute about 50,000 diapers every month as well as everything else. And then I add this big project on top. (laughs) Ken, tell me a little bit about the center that you run. Okay. This center was started by three Seventh-day Avenue churches here in the Tacoma Park Silver Spring area about 40 years ago. I get some support from them. The county really has supported the food pantries nicely over the pandemic. Some of the other local area churches provide some help. And the community has really rallied around the challenges that we have faced and have provided many of the cash resources that that have been essential. There's a couple employment organizations uh, that the Jewish Council on Aging runs for senior citizens. So we call them volunteers, but I have quite a few volunteers that faithfully come here every day in the heat of summer and the cool of winter. Most of our operations have been moved outside because of COVID. Now, this project, I picked up on this just because... You know, there's always a need, and the community wants to respond. Uh, Someone put out on one of the emails, how can I help? So I decided to put out a little notice. Well, this is one way to help, and never expected what I got. I'm partnering with the organizations that actually outfit the apartments. Uh, Homes Not Borders is a principal partner of mine. There's, you know, Lutheran Social Services, IRC, Kind Works is another one that helps set up apartments. So I'm just making these things available to them. A lot of the organizations that, in fact, seven of the nine refugee resettlement organizations that are recognized by the United States government are faith-based organizations. They don't discriminate in who they help, but they are run from organizations that have a faith-based mission. Do you see the faith-based communities responding to this particular acute emergency coming from Afghanistan? Oh, yes. Yeah, without a question. As a Christian, there's a lot of uh, direction to help the stranger, even the stranger within your gate, which to me is is the immigrant that's coming. He, he's a stranger. I've lived overseas different times, and it's not easy to make that transition to another culture. You need a network to help you navigate um, how things work, and without it, life is really, really tough. So I, I see the community saying, okay, we don't know everything we can do, but let's at least have a nice furnished apartment for you to walk into and not just four empty walls what drew you to this work i guess i've often wondered that myself um i spent 30 years doing international relief and development you build this deep empathy and having lived overseas you understand some of the challenge that goes into assimilating and figuring out how the systems work our american bureaucracy can be very intimidating And English is maybe your third language, 
and you're supposed to fill in these forms that are complicated and produce all these documents. And when you're in a, not a very stable situation, those documents can get lost, which then kind of puts you out to the side and you have a hard time qualifying for SNAP and, and some of these kinds of things. You know, there, there's a, a huge learning curve there for this new group of citizens or a new group of, of neighbors. You spent three decades working in international development, and that's, that tends to be a more technical engagement in, develop, in the development world. And now you are doing work, in some ways, at the most community-based level. Yeah. Why did you make that transition? I had built all these networks to work at the international level. I could tell you about poverty in Bangladesh, but I knew nothing about this community. And when I started to build these new networks, these little local networks, and the food insecurity and the the housing insecurity is shocking, absolutely shocking. Why do you think people don't see it? We don't want to see it. In many developing countries, there's the slums. We don't have slums here. We've worked against that. So we tend to want to mix it in and hide it. We don't want to be challenged by that. And when you're challenged and struggling, um, you know, sometimes there's this, you'll hear people say, you know, poor people make such bad decisions. When you are so totally stressed out and you can't figure out how you're going to pay the rent come the end of the month, you're going to make some less than stellar decisions. A tired mind isn't as sharp. We know it when we're driving. When, you know, they say that when you're overtired and driving, it's like you've been drinking. What is one thing that if a listener's listening and says, oh gosh, I really, what he just said struck me. I want to do something. What would you recommend to our listeners in Bloomfield, Michigan? There's got to be some groups that's working to help new arrivals. Uh, You just need to start calling around, call the county social services. They often will know who's doing what. Um, You get in contact with one nonprofit or one food pantry, they'll refer you. There's a network out there that I'm sure that if you knock on a few doors and send a few emails, you will get pointed to somebody that's doing the kind of work that you'd like to get involved in. That's great advice. We had a number of as young as 11 this summer um, helping, and we were duly impressed with the enthusiasm of youth to help someone to do good. It was very encouraging. Someone told me earlier, it's contagious. It is contagious. It is contagious. I'm working myself to the bone here, but the feeling that you leave in people, Mm -hmm. that they walk away with, I helped. Um, and by, for the most part, it's useful help. It's not junk. You know, nice piece of art here that just was, was dropped off. Um, it was somebody's prize at one point, and it'll be somebody's prize again here in a few days. Ken, thank you so much for talking with me and for sharing. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thanks so much. I'm Ken Flimmer, the Executive Director of Avenus Community Services of Greater Washington. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week we're hearing from activists, volunteer organizers, and everyday folks who are stepping up to help their neighbors. From reclaiming the ancient tradition of gleaning to sorting and collecting supplies and distributing food for new arrivals. When looking for ways to help, many turn to faith-based communities for volunteer opportunities, in part because across many traditions, helping the vulnerable is a core tenant. That is absolutely true when it comes to food and hunger. I think the charitable food system was really born out of the faith-based community. That's Kate Martin. She serves as the executive director of the Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions at Connecticut Food Share. It's a nonprofit organization working to end hunger in Hartford and Tolane counties. Martin spent most of her career in academia studying policies and practices. She also engages stakeholders, and that includes listening to clients. Her research informs her new book, Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger. In it, Kate Martin makes the case for why it's time to re-examine how we do good. I've seen so many really wonderful, innovative programs around the country. Many of them are in faith-based organizations. But unfortunately, I've also seen a lot of really well-meaning programs and volunteers that are, I would say, kind of old school, delivering food in ways that can perpetuate um, some of the shame and stigma with asking for help. And I wanted to put all that into a book so that folks could hopefully be inspired and have action steps that they could take in their communities. It's interesting how you just described that, that perpetuating shame and stigma, thinking about the dynamic, the power between the giver and the receiver. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of the best practices are that you have discovered and maybe an example of one of the lessons of what we don't want to do. So I'll give two examples. The traditional food pantry model is where volunteers pre-bag the same food items for every individual. They pack them all in bags. People come to get help and they're handed the same identical bag. It's very efficient. And it's definitely that power dynamic between the giver and the receiver. The better practice is allowing for client choice so that you design the pantry setting so it looks more like a grocery store where people can shop for their food with dignity. And when you think of interfaith um, issues and trying to respect different cultures and backgrounds and all of that. So what I challenge is paying close attention to who are we serving right? Are we serving the convenience and the needs of our volunteers or are we serving the families who are coming in to get food? So that's one example. And another is inviting some of the guests who come to pick up food to serve as volunteers. So it again breaks down some of those power dynamics and you have folks that are from the community who are better able to talk about the needs and the challenges and the goals and the desires when they're on the forefront of helping to make those decisions. How much attention is given to that human dignity part from identifying the need to providing the actual support and service? 
Right. And let me just preface by saying, you know, we all have been through a global pandemic that none of us ever have witnessed in our lifetimes. There's an incredible amount of effort that went into having to pivot quickly and say, let's do a drive-through model where we can't serve people inside, you know. So there's that. I think that increasingly there is more attention and interest in looking at equity, looking at dignity, looking at choice, looking at cultural food preferences. The challenge is that we as human beings don't like to change a whole lot. And so it's easy to get into the status quo of this is how we've always done things. I was listening to an excerpt from your book. You said if, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that the charitable sector has done amazing work, but in some ways, the growth and the stepping in of the charitable sector to address this vulnerability, this hunger, this need, has in some ways let the government sort of off the hook. Right, right. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I can't take all the credit on that one. I was inspired throughout my career by Janet Poppendike, who wrote a wonderful book called Sweet Charity. And she really made that argument that we have these fantastic federal food assistance programs, the safety net of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, it's now called SNAP, and school meals. That really is our the first line of defense against hunger. We have these programs, they work well, but they're often underfunded. One of the really, really intriguing things um, is the U.S. Department of Agriculture just released data on food insecurity showing that food insecurity really didn't budge between 2019 and 2020, which is shocking because all of us have seen these lines of cars. We know people have been laid off of work. And I would argue that a lot of that is because the government intervened so heavily with stimulus checks, with um eviction moratoriums with increased benefits for SNAP and other outreach so that people didn't struggle as much as they might have if the government didn't intervene. For volunteers, for people who are tangentially supporting these networks, what should they be advocating for? I very clearly believe that hunger in America is a matter of political will. We can solve this problem. What I try to outline in my book is many, many different ways, big and small, big P policy, little P policy, big A advocacy, little A advocacy that people can get involved. Because for some folks, the idea of like, you should write your legislator to increase benefits for the SNAP program, that's not something they're going to likely do. But advocating at the local level to say, are there better ways that we can operate this food program so it's not so demeaning um, and often humiliating and perpetuating that, you know, that barrier? Are there small things that you can advocate for within your local programs to say, have you thought about offering client choice? Have we thought about engaging our guests as volunteers? And then I think when we design programs that are more dignified, it opens up the opportunity for the people who are receiving help to become advocates, not only for themselves, but for their community, so that they can feel empowered to say, it's not okay that there isn't affordable childcare in my community. It's not okay that there isn't transportation to get to the grocery store, like advocating for that systems level change. 
What role do you see faith communities playing today? They're critical. And I think the charitable food system was really born out of the faith-based community. It often was neighbors who were showing up at church, at synagogue, at you know mosque saying, you know, my husband got laid off or I just got divorced and I'm having a hard time feeding my kids and people step up. And I think it's it's rooted in so many faiths to, you know, feed the hungry and to, you know, be there. So I don't think our charitable food system would exist without the faith-based community. Having said that, you know, then here are all these, you can layer in all these other opportunities to make it even better. And what should faith communities be mindful of? I think the more that we can design programs that are more strength-based and person-centered, moving away from a charity mindset, which often, you know, when you think of like that faith-based approach, it's often charity, moving more along the continuum to fight for justice. That was Kate Martin. She serves as the executive director of the Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions at Connecticut Food Share, the nonprofit organization working to end hunger in Hartford and Tolane counties. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.